Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to educating and empowering men to address erectile dysfunction, improve confidence, and enhance the satisfaction in their relationships. This podcast is brought to you by ErectionIQ.com. Learn more at ErectionIQ.com. Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. I am Mark Goldberg, Certified Sex Therapist. I am deeply passionate about working with men like you to help resolve their ED. We are joined again by Dr. Amy Perlman. Dr. Perlman is a urologic surgeon focused on men's sexual health. She is an assistant professor and the men's health program director at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. If you haven't heard the first episode with her, I strongly recommend you listen to it. We discuss different treatment options for erectile dysfunction. Now today we wanna discuss how to talk to a partner about the various erectile dysfunction treatments. So Dr. Perlman, one of the most difficult things for a man to face is the loss of sexual function. Do you see male patients who are consumed by shame and embarrassment? And if so, how does this present in your office? You bring up a really great question. And first of all, it's so good to be back on the podcast with you. But I think the patients that I see have self-selected in some ways they are the ones who have called up to a urology clinic. They understand that they're going to see a woman. They show up to their visit. And so already they're a different population of men than most people in the community, right? And so I make sure that they understand it's so great that you're here and whatever words that you want to use to describe your concerns that's fine. Don't worry about offending me. You know, I've literally dedicated my career to having these concerns. So there's nothing to be embarrassed about, but even the guys who build up the courage to see someone like me, there's so much shame for a lot of these folks, especially for men who have not been through the healthcare system, which is a little bit different from some of my patients who let's say have multiple medical problems are used to seeing a healthcare provider on a regular basis are used to being in a hospital gown and having to derobe. And so for those guys, when we talk about these issues, they're kind of, they've, they, they, this is how they verbalize it. I've already lost some of my dignity. Whatever you need to do is fine. So that's sort of like the patient who's been through it all, who has less shame and is willing to just put everything out there. But for most of the guys who see me or most of the guys who have these questions, it is normal and expected to not know how to talk about it because we don't teach men or show them how to talk about it. So a lot of men don't have a good role model or framework by which to come into a doctor's office and say, I'm worried about my sexual function. They're just, it's not commonly spoken about. And I would say as a woman, I have it easier in general because I talk to my lady friends about these issues And men don't tend to not have that luxury as much to be able to even verbalize my penis isn't working. So, yeah, I think it's it's common and expected for so many men who see me. And you bring up a number of points that that um, for the most part, men are socialized to not talk about the issues. They may want to talk about, uh, you know, their past sexual escapades and, you know, where they can flex and and show off that bravado. But the idea of talking about a sexual challenge or a sexual problem is not very common. It's also not lost on me that you mentioned just this dynamic that, you know, certainly for heterosexual men to come 
to see somebody like yourself as a female urologist that does take, I think, a certain level of courage. And I really can appreciate um, you know, your efforts to kind of commend these men because it does take courage to kind of break out of that, that social mold of not talking about these problems and coming forward and talking to a female urologist, you know, is, is, you know, certainly, you know, can be challenging. So how then do you go ahead and talk to the patients about treatments when they're in this vulnerable place? When I meet someone new, I don't go right into the reason why they schedule the visit. And oftentimes I can tell just based on the note or the referral, why they're coming in to see me. It might say erectile dysfunction or orgasmic dysfunction, something like that, or penile curvature, but I I don't start there. And so I'll introduce myself and I'll say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm Dr. Amy Perlman. I'm a urologist. I specialize in men's health and sexual health. Thank you so much for coming in today. I'm usually running behind because I talk a lot. So I'll say, thank you so much for your patience today. You know, I appreciate you waiting for me. And, and then I'll go, I'll say, you know, before we get into the reason for today's visit, let's just talk through some basic medical issues to start. Do you have any medical problems? Or I see in your chart that you have high blood pressure and diabetes. Am I missing other any other major medical problems there? When it comes to surgeries, have you had your appendix removed? Do you still have your gallbladder? The medications I have that you take on a regular basis are these. I see that you don't have any known allergies. So we just get into these basic medical questions where I can start developing rapport with the patient. And then once we go through that basic information, I'll say, okay, well, let's get into the reason for today's visit. And I'm fine with you using whatever terms that you would like to use to describe your concerns. My understanding is you're coming in today to talk about sexual function concerns. Is that correct? And I like to verbalize that first, sexual function. I like to tell them I specialize in quality of life concerns that affect everyday men. And those include concerns about hormones, low testosterone, erectile dysfunction, premature ejaculation. So sometimes I'll verbalize a laundry list of some of those so that it tells the person I've heard it before, you know, and if he looks at me and is not really sure kind of where to go then I'll say, look, there's nothing I haven't heard before in this office. And usually when I say that, they tell me something and I'm like, I haven't heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I love, I love the way you're kind of describing just that, that generalizing and normalizing. I know that you basically have heard it all before. <laughs> um, so, you know, even with that joke, I know that, that, um, that um, when you say that it is genuine, that this is what I do. And this is so common and so normal and like at your own comfort, you can share this with me because here are all the things that I have already spoken to other people about today. Exactly. The amount of times that I've spoken, you know, in the past week, month, or in all the years I've been doing this work. Um, and and like you're saying, I imagine that becomes, you know, very, very comforting. Um, and that's and something I also I, don't expect that they're going to tell me everything at that initial visit. Like they can tell me some things. And then maybe the next time I see them, They tell me something else if they feel comfortable. You know, my job is not to learn all their deep, dirty secrets, right? I'm there to provide them guidance with whatever information they feel comfortable telling me in that moment. Yeah, and this is something that, that, um, you know, I see from the therapy end of it as well, is that it takes time for people to develop that relationship with you as a provider to feel comfortable. And not everything has to be out on the table at minute one. Because while clinically that information may be really helpful to us in our conceptualization, 
it probably does not help the patient to just divulge everything, feel terribly vulnerable and uncomfortable to come back to the office because that is going to prevent long-term positive outcomes for treatment and long-term rapport building with the patient. Yeah. And we also can't, you know, these patients or these people, when they come in, this is not like I noticed this yesterday and I'm coming in today. This is like, it all started 20 years ago. And this is what has happened over the last 20 years. So there's just so much to unpack. And whether it's in your office where let's say you're meeting with them for an hour or in my office where let's say they're in a 15 minute slot, you know, there, there are some time constraints. And so it's understanding what are the goals of today's visit? What would make today's visit successful? And what are we going to talk about your next visit? And that's okay to break it up. Which is great. So Dr. Bowen, you were mentioning before, and I think I have a very similar experience that, that uh, like you, I see almost pre-filtered cases because the, the men that come to see me for sexual dysfunction have, you know, kind of made it through the, the, the funnel, so to speak that they have the courage, that they are in a position where they're willing to do that. Now, the men who I see are often able to bridge that gap to reach out for help. And they can work on treatment for themselves. But I do see that many of the men that I work with struggle with how to approach their partner. Many of the men that initially come to see me express hesitancy at the idea of bringing their partner into a session or incorporating their partner in the treatment. They're really looking for a solution that oftentimes comes with the caveat of, and my partner can't really know about this, or I don't want my partner to know about this. I'm wondering if you see something similar, a similar trend in your office. Yes, I think we both see the same concerns when it comes to our, our male patients. And I, it's really nice when patients who are partnered come in with their partners, because then I can sit down with both of those people and I can explain to the man in front of his partner, Sally, it's not you, it's him. He has diabetes. He has high blood pressure. This is what diabetes and high blood pressure do to the penis, you know, and, and because that person, let's say Mike, he might've been telling Sally, you know, for five years, he's still attracted to her. It's not her, but as women, we don't believe that information. I mean, I specialize in this area and I don't believe it sometimes either, you know? And so sometimes you just have to, not only the key here is we're not only teaching the patient in our office about their body, in partnered relationships, the partner also has to understand what's going on, not only with their body, but with their partner's body. So I love when the two people come into the office together and I make sure in those scenarios to tell both people, it says so much about your relationship that both of you are here today. Thank you so much for coming in. And, um, and, and it's, it's nice to have four ears listening into this conversation. In those instances, it also allows me to teach the man about his partner's body. And that's where I feel like my role as a woman in men's health can be especially helpful is I can tell that man, and if we're, and certainly there are many types of relationships and not just heterosexual relationships, but if we're talking about in this case, a heterosexual relationship, I can tell the man that most women 
don't orgasm via penovaginal intercourse. So while it's super important that I address his erectile function, his penis doesn't always have to work to lead to a successful, intimate sexual relationship. And there are different ways to be creative. And oftentimes when I say this information and I let, now I have a, actually I have a vulva and a vagina in my office that I show my patients. And it's to say, look, this is where the clitoris is. This is how a lot of women orgasm is with clitoral stimulation. And I look at the female partner and they're like, uh-huh, 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 you know? So I see my role oftentimes as telling my patient, the male patient, what maybe the partner has tried to tell their partner for many years, or maybe they didn't know how to verbalize the information. So in those scenarios, I'm, I wouldn't call myself the bad guy, but I sometimes talk about the elephant in the room that they just haven't known to talk about as a couple. Yeah. Which makes, you know, so much sense. And I, I, I you know, just love you know, everything that you're saying about, you know, helping, you know, in those heterosexual relationships, helping that male partner to um, understand the, I think the appropriate place and role of the penis in the whole process. And that, even as a solution toward, let's say, erectile dysfunction is being worked towards, there are many, many options for intimate contact and an intimate relationship to continue through that entire process. Because I think that's a really, really powerful message. Now, and the uh, real quick, and the yeah. other key point here is that a man can have an orgasm and ejaculate without an erection. And a man can have an erection, a great erection, but not orgasm and ejaculate. So that sense of pleasure actually has nothing to do with the erection itself. And my goal is to help men understand that, that they can still experience these feelings without putting so much pressure on themselves and that their partners, regardless, you know, irrespective of the gender of their partners, they can still experience pleasure too without their partner having a rock hard erection. Yeah, it, it's very, very powerful information. And like you were saying before, it's a lot easier said than digested. And there's a there's a there's a reality to that. I think that a lot of um, you know male psychology is very much tied up in the erection process, even though pleasure, orgasm, and the like are all entirely possible without the erection. And, you know, conversely, you can have a really solid erection without ejaculation, without orgasm. Um, So yeah, it's really, really important that, that men hear this. Now, more often than not, at least in my experience, men are showing up on their own. And many of them are in partner relationships. That's part of the driver, the impetus to Um, address the sexual dysfunction. And I think it's a question that I face and one that I want to kind of bring toward you for you to answer is, how do you think a man should speak to his partner about these various treatment options if his partner doesn't come into the office to hear it directly from you? There are a few ways that he might do that. One of the reasons why I provide my patients with educational material to go home with, a packet of information, as well as an entire page of different online resources, is I tell him, you know, when you go home and if your partner asks you, well, Mike, what did you discuss today with the urologist? 
I can verbalize those terms. You can say, oh, my urologist told me, gave me this packet. And then you, let's say you leave it on the table and then your partner can read it, right? Or let's say you say, oh, my, my urologist uh, told me to look at this YouTube video. And then you pull up the YouTube video. And then I say, hey, I'm Dr. Amy Perlman. And let's talk about erectile dysfunction today and why it happens and what we can do about it. And then that it puts less pressure on that man to have to explain everything to his partner. So that can be one tool or to pull up your podcast and to say, oh, yeah, I just my friend told me about this podcast and I'm going to listen to it. Do you want to listen in as well? And then and then that part, partner can also hear that information. Other ways to do it might be to say, I really care about you. I care about a relationship. I respect you. I want us to both enjoy being together, whether it's on the couch or in the bedroom. And I just wonder if we could talk about how we could make this enjoyable for both of us. You know, my current concerns are like, it feels really good when we're together. And I'm worried that I'm I'm getting off a little bit too soon before you can enjoy, you know, your orgasm. So I heard, or my sex therapist or my urologist, or I saw online, that a topical spray could be helpful to help me last longer. So I was going to try that tonight. What do you think? Or, you know, wow, it feels so good when we're together. I want to last longer. And I got this vibrating ring. I heard it's going to feel really good for you. Do you want to try it? Mm-hmm. You know, and so there are ways to bring it up where you're putting it like you you care about the other person. You want them to experience pleasure. Like if any of my partners were, you know, to say, um, hey, I want you to feel really good. I got this vibrator for you. Do you mind if we try it out? I'd be like, hell yeah, come on in, you know? So I think a lot of people are open to it. I talk about vibrators with my 70-year-old and 80-year-old patients, and I think I have yet to offend most of them. A lot of them say, oh yeah, my partner already has a vibrator. And then I say, well, do you have, do you have one for yourself? And they're like, no, I didn't know there were ones for men. And then I give them examples of a vibrator for men. I'm like, yeah, it feels good for your partner. You should definitely get one for yourself. And I give them recommendations. So I don't just say, oh, look online or look on a porno site. I give them recommendations from their doctor to get a vibrator. And I say, tis the season, it's holiday season. Why don't you consider getting something for yourself and your partner? It's going back to me normalizing it, saying sexual health is an important part of health. We want to optimize all parts of your health. So let's figure out how to be creative. And just like I would talk about medications for high blood pressure or diabetes, I talk about vibrators. Which is fantastic. I really like the frame um, that you mentioned before about making sure that when a man goes to present this to a par- to his partner, it's not coming across as I have a problem with you. You know, when we're together, I just can't seem to keep my erection or I'm ejaculating too quickly, which really puts the partner on the defensive. And I, I think the frame that you were providing was one of, I really like being with you. Like, I love these moments that we have together. And if there's anything that can be done to enhance this moment, to make it you know more enjoyable for both of us, um, I would love if we could partner around X, Y, and Z, which is a totally different frame. And I know it sounds maybe Mark, the way you said that was like, so sexy. Like if, if any <laughs> man said that to his partner, I just don't think there's any way that that could be taken as offensive. Right. And it, it, it sounds, it might sound trivial to some of our listeners, but it really makes a world of a difference in terms of how that comes across because 
I think sex is a very vulnerable topic. And even the, the phraseology and the way that it comes across is the difference between somebody becoming really defensive and somebody kind of just responding to that reach by putting out their hand and saying, yeah, let's, let's partner around this to make this better. So I really, really appreciate that framework. One of the things that I talk about with my, with my clients, the couples that I work with and the individuals, something called the sexual script, which is that unwritten, unspoken process that a lot of couples develop in terms of how they engage sexually. One of the interesting questions that I have is from your perspective, how can some of these treatments for a condition like erectile dysfunction be incorporated into the sexual script that a couple has or may need to redevelop around managing erectile dysfunction? I love that concept of sexual scripts because an example of what that may have looked like with a couple in their thirties may have been, Hey babe, do you want a glass of wine? And then even though that's a non-sexual activity, both people kind of know, okay, well, I know from prior experiences when Mike grabs me a glass of wine that leads to intercourse at the end of the night. So both people kind of know where that non-sexual experience, where that's going, you know, a little bit later on. But then as let's say they have kids or work gets stressful and they're working late at night, then it's, they're not grabbing wine anymore and the kids are around. And so that sexual script might be um, waking the other person up in the middle of the night and saying, Hey babe, like, you know, are you ready or something like that? I don't know what it would be. Okay. Well, I think it's important. Every couple is actually going to have their own idiosyncratic script. So it's going to work that way for some work. It might be a touch of the leg. It might be, do you want to watch a movie? Do you want to watch Netflix? Do you want to go out to dinner? Can I rub your feet? Like it's all different. Um, or it might be, hey, I'll meet you in the bedroom in five or hey, I'll meet you in the bathroom in 10. Right? So they're, all, they're all very different. But as things get more complicated, it's so rare that couples say, acknowledge how that sexual script has changed when they're no longer grabbing the glass of wine. And when it becomes more difficult to get aroused or to get an erection, then it's like you got to grab the pill bottle or you have to grab injections. And so how does that fit in and take place of that glass of wine? And that's where talking about it can be really helpful, but but it's and, and it can be about timing. And so understanding if I take Viagra, I got to wait about 45 minutes to an hour. So what do I do after I take Viagra? You know, if I'm not quite yet ready, then if I can't get the erection, what happens there? So really the key is trying these therapies outside of the outside of the partnered relationship. So a guy can understand when I take Viagra, for me, how long does it take to take effect? Or after I eat, how long do I need to wait before I try to engage in sexual activity? Or after I give myself an injection, does it take five minutes, 10 minutes, or 15 minutes to get the erection? And that can make it easier to plan for those times where the guy might not be okay divulging this information to their partner. And even though you and I recognize the importance that these conversations should be had, it's not mandatory. There are some guys that don't want to have it or they're in a new relationship and it just might not be a good time. So I don't think it's fair either to tell guys, if you're going to inject your penis, you must tell your partner. Like, no, you don't. You don't have to tell your partner. So it's just understanding, take it outside of the partner relationship. 
see what works for you, self-stimulate, see what it feels like. So you know what you're getting into when you're then in that partnered encounter and can better time it. Yes, I, I, I like it. It sounds almost like a, a twofold optional approach, which is I think people need to recognize that there are sexual scripts and any change that comes to the management of a condition like erectile dysfunction is going to necessitate rewriting the script. In some instances, it may not be overly necessary to incorporate your partner into a, a into a change because it's minor. It's a matter of, you know, one extra step. And, you know, the male partner who's who's managing erectile dysfunction takes that responsibility on and kind can kind of just get back onto the script track that they've already developed. And that's an option. I think for other um, situations where it requires stimulation, like on a PDE5 inhibitor, and it may require some time beyond mapping the previous sexual script and possibly having to make adjustments is that there is an option, if appropriate, to talk to a partner about adjusting the sexual script and finding a way that this works for both of them in that warm-up period while the medication or treatment is kicking in. Exactly. And then for those who, you know, want to talk about these options and really bring their partner into it, then maybe it becomes instead of let me grab a glass of wine, maybe it's I'm going to go pop a Viagra. Or maybe it's, hey, babe, do you want to go get a syringe from the freezer and defrost it for me? Or maybe, you know, partners need prep too regardless of, you know, the gender of the partner. So like for me or for like a lot of women, just because you can get an erection doesn't mean I'm ready for it, you know? Right. So with, so with, with all, exactly. All so with, people can prepare. We mm-hmm. all need time for that. So maybe the guy's grabbing the vacuum pump and preparing him. And then maybe I'm grabbing a vibrator and preparing myself, you know? So both people actually, when we get down to the basics, men and women are very similar. We both need prep. We both need foreplay. And so it's saying, what does your body need? What does my body need? And how do we prep together and then get into it together? Yeah. And I think if conversation around the sexual script is possible, that that's you know even better. For some couples, it's individual prep leading up to an experience that's almost at or ready for penetrative sex. And for other couples, it's that prep is going to happen jointly. So if we're talking about a PD5 inhibitor and you need 45 minutes for things to kick in, well, what is our new script? What does that mean? How, how are we engaging around that together? Or how are we engaging around this separately leading up to the experience we're ready to go? But so much of that, I think, comes back to a healthy communication, which I believe when possible really leads to the best results. Exactly. And after you take a Viagra, I'm sure the partner would love a foot massage. So what better time than to give a foot massage and right after you take Viagra. (laughs) Exactly. So Dr. Perlman, I'm going to ask you a a challenging question. This is a question that, um, you know, I see clinically and I think it's a real, it's a real challenge and a real struggle. And I'd love to get your opinion about this. What, What do you tell men who have a very critical partner and they're really afraid to speak to them about the sexual dysfunction or about any of the treatment options. How do you talk to them about having this conversation with their partner? I see that in my office 
do. And guys will say, whether it's a current partner or a past partner, if they're coming in and they have a shortened penis or a curved penis, they'll say that their partner gives them a nickname. Or they'll say, my partner says I'm too small. Or I had one guy recently say that his prior partners told him they were only with him because he had a big dick. And so now that he has concerns about his sexual function, he's worried he will never be in a relationship again because his prior partners told him that information. So we all have to understand that our words matter and that men are not immune to that. So anything that might hurt my feelings could hurt anyone else's feelings related to my body, my function, anything about my life. And that's why everyone involved in these sexual encounters needs to understand how the other partner's body works, you know, and we just have to practice having these conversations outside of two people being naked. So having these in-depth sensitive conversations, they shouldn't happen when we're in the bedroom. Right. And they might happen in a sex therapist's office or they might happen on a couch or over a dinner table, but they're really tough conversations to have. And we as women or partners are not taught how to bring up our concerns either. So oftentimes, even if we really care about our partner, we don't know how to bring up the concerns of, hey, you come in two minutes. I didn't orgasm yet. Like, what the fuck is up? You know, like we don't know how to tell our concerns. And so the key really is with education and um, and just being nice and sensitive and realizing that men and women are more similar than we are different. And if someone were to comment to us about how quickly or how long it takes for us to orgasm or to comment on how our body parts look or feel or anything like that, then that's anything that we say to our partners is going to affect them the same way or has the ability to, but yeah, sometimes, you know, even though that I specialize in this and I'm supposed to be an expert on how to bring up these concerns, I've done it wrong as well. And so we have to learn from those experiences. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, this is, this is, I think one of the most challenging uh, situations where either there's a viable medical treatment, but a, a man's afraid to bring this up to his partner or in combination, um, a man is really anxious about what his partner might think about him and does not know how to get that conversation started. Um, I think this is one of the most challenging things that I see in my office. And I would imagine that you you encountered this challenge as well. Uh, But I I definitely appreciate um, that message to all of our listeners that those words do make a big difference. And, you know, what seems like a cute little nickname um, really can can dig very deep into into emotionally painful points um, for the men who are experiencing these sexual function challenges or experiencing loss of length, loss of girth um, and whatnot. Now. In your opinion, is there ever a time that a man should not share about his ED treatment with a partner? And in particular, I think one of the things that comes up is when a man is in a new relationship and it's very, very early on. So in your opinion, should the default direction be to try to figure out how to share this? Or are there times that in your clinical judgment, it just makes sense to take a PD-5 inhibitor or use injection therapy and let the relationship maybe get 
seated a little bit and then figure out how to have the conversation a little bit further down the road. It can certainly go either way because in a new relationship, if that partner doesn't know that their new partner has diabetes or high blood pressure, they might think, okay, we've gone to like five movies. They're not inviting me over. They must not be attracted to me. When really that that guy might be thinking, I'm really attracted to this person, but I don't think I can get it up tonight. And so that relationship might very well end because the partner wants to engage in a sexual encounter, but the person with a sexual dysfunction doesn't think he can perform. So we definitely see that. So it's nice to be able to have those conversations, especially in the reality is the the relationship can end either way. It can end if the person isn't functioning and doesn't tell the person because that person's going to feel like they're not attracted to them. But certainly if someone just gets out, you know, a suitcase or a credenza and has pills and vacuum pumps and vibrators and just unloads everything at once and says, hey, I'm going to put myself up. Like, are you ready? You know, that's not the best way to go about it either. So every relationship is different, but there are plenty of relationships that end because the partner doesn't think that the person they're engaging with is attracted because they're not inviting them over. It's tough. It's challenging. I'm so glad we have people like you to help tease that out. Yes. Well, it's, it's a challenging thing. That's why I like to learn from everybody about how they see this. But in particular, if a man has a viable treatment, so uh, he's dating and um, he's dating frequently enough that he needs to have a solution. And let's say PD5 inhibitors are working for him. In those relationships, do you think that it might make sense for him to not necessarily disclose all that information on day one, take the time for the relationship to kind of get seated and then learn how to share this over time? Would that be a fair strategy yeah, or he, a fair if approach? If he wants to share the information. I mean, honestly, when I'm in a relationship with someone, I don't like pull out my me- medical record and say, these are the surgeries that I had. These are my medical problems. These are my medications that I'm on, you know? So we don't have to disclose everything about ourselves, even in a relationship. Even if we love someone, we don't necessarily have to share every single thing about our health if we don't want to. Yeah. I think one of the challenges that I hear from the men that I work with, though, is um, if I have some kind of challenge with my kidneys, I generally can hide that pretty well when I'm out dating. But when I have a challenge with erections, I, I can't really hide that so well. So to disclose or not to disclose, like that is kind of the question, because there's only so long until this is going to be visible, or it's going to become apparent uh, to my partner. And that's what kind of the unique challenge that I hear from the men that I work with, which I think adds a layer of complexity to like whether to share or whether not to share and at what stage to do that. Look, we as women have the luxury and the curse of being able to fake our orgasms. Men don't have that luxury. And, and so there is this immense performance pressure on men mm-hmm. because there's no, there's no way to hide if he can't maintain the erection. Everyone involved in that sexual encounter will know. And I, I recognize that now seeing men for the last three years is I always thought, woe is me being a woman. Uh, it's really tough. And while it can be tough being a woman, it can also be really tough being a man. 
And we have to allow ourselves some grace to say, I don't care if you are the picture of health. I don't care if you have big biceps or triceps or got a what the highest score on the SAT. Nobody, man, woman, child, any gender can perform 100% of the time. And even if they have perfect structure and function, still nobody can perform 100% of the time. And as a woman, I understand that about my body. And I'm open to saying, look, it's just not going to happen tonight, you know? Um, And I'm okay saying that. And I think we all have to get comfortable saying whether it's because I drank a little bit too much or because I'm stressed out or for whatever reason, it's just not going to happen tonight. And everyone involved has to be like, okay, I'm okay with that. And not to say you still can't enjoy it. You can still enjoy sexual activity without a rock hard erection or multiple orgasms. So it's just, just getting back to the basics of touch and how to enjoy the moment and allowing ourselves some grace. I can definitely appreciate that. I think it's really important for our listeners to hear those messages that men, men are not machines. And if you're not into it, like it's okay to not engage or it's okay to find some other way to engage. Doesn't always mean that you need to have a rock hard erection, whether you are super stressed or whether you are super in the mood. Dr. Perlman, each treatment for erectile dysfunction is different. Does that make a difference in how and what is communicated to the partner? necessarily. Maybe you could clarify that question. Sure. So if a man is using a ring, let's say to um, restrict blood flow, that's something which is apparent to the partner. If a man is using a medication that takes 45 minutes to a couple hours to kick in, that's going to be a different impact on the partner. Injection therapy, implants. As we kind of talk about the different treatments, each of these kind of impact that sexual script. So I'm wondering in, in your work, is it a broad conversation about, we just have to make some changes. Are there specific things that come along with each treatment that are recommended, how to incorporate a PD five inhibitor into partner activity, how to incorporate injection therapy. I don't know if you have couples where the partner is the one who injects um, the shot. I, I don't know if that's something that can be Uh, sexualized or incorporated into the sexual script. I imagine that there are people out there that have figured that out. Um, But do each of these treatments kind of create a little bit of a different conversation and a different incorporation into the sexual script? Or is this more of a broad base, you know, things are going to change and we have to figure out how to make this work for each of us and then come back together? Absolutely. So they're all very different and can affect the partner. And the example in terms of the medications, if someone is taking the short acting versus the longer acting, if they're taking the Cialis longer acting medication, then that person might be able to get back in bed within 12 hours to have another sexual encounter versus have to take another Viagra, for example. So it can certainly affect the next time that person's going to be ready to have another erection. The other way is, you know, let's say the couple is typically having intercourse or sexual activity right after dinner. Well, if that person just took Viagra, that's not going to work as well. So that might affect in terms of when they engage in sexual activity related to food, which is going to affect that sexual script. When we when it comes to tension bands and and different vibrators, I mean, there are some tension bands that might feel uncomfortable for the partner. 
So that can definitely affect if it's on, even if the person has a rock hard erection with a tension band, if it's hitting the partner in a wrong area or is painful or feels great because it vibrates, then that can also affect the partner as well. And when it comes to injection therapy, some guys will have pain with the injection. And if someone is using a therapy and it causes pain, that's kind of a cock block and can be uncomfortable for both the patient. But let's say the partner, let's say the gentleman is, let's say, overweight and doesn't have a good view of the penis or has poor hand dexterity. And so the partner is doing the actual injection into the penis, which is totally fine. If that injection causes pain and the partner knows that it causes pain, that's not really sexy for that encounter either, you know, and might prohibit the a regular use of the injection therapy. And then lastly, when it comes to penile implant therapy, you know, certainly a partner could wake up and pump the guy up in the middle of the night and say, hey, I'm ready, you know, let's get this going. Um, it also, because this implant can last for however long, that conversation is really important because whereas before when Mike was taking Viagra, that wasn't going to last forever. Okay. But this implant can literally technically last forever in the erect state. So that partner needs to be able to communicate with the person with the implant to say, okay, that feels great. Thank you so much. You know, we're good. <laughs> we're good. Right. Because if, if that partner would be fine with a 10 minute, you know, intercourse session, but, but he orgasmed, but can still maintain. So it's normal to orgasm and to lose the erection. Okay. But if he orgasms, but can you a penis, penis without an implant, you're saying yes. the natural yeah, yeah, yeah. progression a penis without an implant. When someone orgasms and ejaculates, it's normal to then have the erection go down. Okay. But if someone has an implant in, I mean, he might be able to orgasm and ejaculate, but he can still maintain the erection. So it's important that the partner can say, can tell them when they're good, right. Mm -hmm. So that they don't maintain it for an infinite period of time. So co those conversations are so critical. Yeah. And each conversation, it sounds like it has, you know, general generalities, but also unique components in terms of how this gets incorporated. And people yeah. should be sensitive to that as opposed to just kind of telling their partner, well, I'm, I'm undergoing treatment and uh, I'll keep you posted how it goes. Yeah. It has to really be more of a specific conversation. Now, Dr. Perlman, I've asked you a number of really tough questions. I'm going to wrap up with a question that I think is maybe a little bit easier, but, but, you know, tough nonetheless. One of the uh, words that I hear very often, and I'm not a huge fan of it, but I think it's a very common want from people is spontaneity. People do not like needing to plan. And certainly when it comes to a lot of these um, treatments for erectile dysfunction, planning is important. Uh, planning is not only important, it's, it's a necessary step in order to get there. So how do you talk to your patients about sharing this with their partner and that some of the elements of spontaneity are not quite going to be there like they were in the past. Exactly. And that's where, you know, all these therapies, if I have this whole discussion and roadmap of all these therapies, and I say at the end, you know, Mike, what are you thinking about? Like, what would you like to proceed with? And he says, I don't know, you tell me. It means I didn't explain them in a, in a way that he could really understand the differences between these therapies, because each of them is very different in terms of their implications on spontaneity. 
a lot of my patients, I'll actually put them on a daily dose of Cialis. So it's always in their body. And for a lot of guys, that's enough where they can get an erection whenever they want to for sexual activity. So that's awesome for spontaneity. And even if they need to take an additional Cialis on top of that, if they take it, you know, four hours in advance, that's going to be allow them for very spontaneous sexual activity later that day. The penile implant also allows for great spontaneity because you don't have to prep anything. You don't have to get medication and time it and defrost it from the freezer. All you have to do, and it takes like, I don't know, 15 to 30 seconds is pump up the device and the person gets an erection. That's, but that's the, more spontaneous than most men's natural exactly. processes. So the key thing to understand in that scenario is just because you can get a rock hard erection in 15 to 30 seconds doesn't mean you can orgasm and ejaculate. And it doesn't mean your partner is going to be satisfied. So you still have to stimulate the nerves. So foreplay is still really important, mm-hmm. despite the fact that you have an implant in and can get the erection much quicker. Yeah, and that's, that's an important topic that we're going to cover at you know length, I think, on this podcast is the overlap, but also you know, distinctions between the erection process and the ejaculatory process, because a lot of times it's easy relatively speaking, medically to facilitate or induce that erection, but ejaculation, not so much because it does require stimulation of all sorts. Um, And certainly with the implant, I think it's an excellent point that just because you can get the erection in, you know, 15 to 30 seconds does not mean that the rest of the systems are really online to just lead to the type of robust sexual experience that somebody's looking for. So I really, really, really appreciate that point. Dr. Perlman, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Once again, I cannot wait to get this out to our listeners because I think this is an important topic in general, just how to bring this up with a partner and the information that you provided for us. And I think some of the advice and the framing is so important. So again, thank you very much for your time and look forward to hosting you again for another episode. This has been great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. For more information on today's topic and understanding how the mind impacts erectile dysfunction, please visit ErectionIQ.com. That's ErectionIQ.com.